Hey guys, this week's episode is brought to you by Rothy's. You know I'm pretty much obsessed with my Rothy's shoes, so I'm really excited not only to tell you more about them, but that they're giving our listeners free shipping on any order with the code YHL. Just go to rothys.com, that's rothys.com, and enter the code YHL. I'm John. And I'm Sherry. We like home stuff. We like talking. And we like the occasional game show sound effect. So welcome to Young House Love Has a Podcast, where we have deep and not so deep conversations about DIY, design, and life at home. Today we're covering lots of ground, from the results of our shoes off poll to the debate over textured walls. Also, what one listener learned from dressing in all black like me, and a third dollhouse tests my willpower. So you guys know I have kind of a dollhouse problem in that we set out to get a dollhouse and then ended up with two dollhouses, one for each kid, and it has been great and we've been having so much fun with them. But then I kind of side noted that we also have a little sweet shop that was very hard to put together. So there are like three dollhouse scale items in our house. And I was like, but that's it. Like, that's probably too many, but it's fine because they play it's with them. Definitely. Well, no, it's not too many, but it's definitely on the verge of too many. Right. It's like the the edge of me having 100 dollhouses and becoming the woman who plays in the attic with all of her dollhouses when her kids are off in college. I'm close to yeah, that. <laughs> you are on that track. I'm working up to that. So then the universe tested me. I got a message from a really close friend of ours. She is like a beloved woman in our life. She was the preschool teacher for our daughter her very first year of preschool. So like the very first person we bequeathed our little love bug to. <laughs> Not bequeathed, no. but like she took care of our beloved little bean when we dropped her off at preschool every day. And we became very close with her. We're around the same age. We live in the same neighborhood. Yeah. So I got a message from her the other day and it was like, hey, I know you already have so many dollhouses. Sure is known for this around the neighborhood now. <laughs> dollhouse girl so she was like listen i grew up with this little dollhouse and my dad was gonna craigslist it and it didn't sell for some weird reason but it's beyond charming it's haunted no no and the reason i'm contacting you is because it looks exactly like your white house like now that you've painted the bricks this dollhouse is your house and i feel like it should be yours but like i know you already have too many dollhouses so take it or leave it (laughs) sherry brought this up to me i was like sherry knows what to do here like (laughs) She'll make the right decision. I can, I can trust her, right? Like, I don't... <laughs> this does not have to be a John says no, because Sherry is a reasonable woman <laughs> and will know to say, no, I'm good. As charming as this house is and that I love you very much as a friend and a special person and I'm sorry I didn't sell on Craigslist, like, I'm good. Cut to, like, the screeching of tires as I peel out to go get the dollhouse. <laughs> I come back. She also gave us lots of furniture, which is totally my love language because the kids love new little accessories. Like, we got a tiny little pizza and a pizza box. This is the justification phase, everyone. <laughs> so we came with lots of fun stuff. And I was like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring it home. And I'm going to say to our daughter, because it's the big size of our daughter's big one. And I'll just say to her, look, there's this one that looks like our house. And it's from our beautiful family friend who we all love. Or there's this original one that we got secondhand. We can give one of them to one of your friends, like one of your dollhouse loving friends will get one of these. (laughs) You basically put the decision on her. I said, yeah, you can choose because I don't want to be that mom that makes you keep the one I like. I want you to keep the one you like, even though the whole time I was like, cross all fingers that she picks the one that looks like our house. This was a test for our daughter, clearly. Well, she immediately was like, oh, I love the one that looks like our house because not only does it look like our house, but it's a blank canvas. Like it was truly unpainted, unwallpapered. It was just the raw wood inside. It almost looked new, 
which is so funny because it's very, very old and never got the shingles put on the roof. But it's basically like in its earliest form and then was never built upon. So our daughter, as the little architect slash designer, sees so much potential in this very raw version and also likes that it looks like our house. So it was it was easy for her. And she knows which friend who's also very into dollhouses that she wants to give it to. Yes, because I did have to put a foot down, guys, and say, we're not keeping all three dollhouses. <laughs> like, I was like, it could be a little village. <laughs> she was like, what if we have one in our room? I just love them. But I promise you, it sounds like I may have like whispered in her ear, like keep the one that looks like ours. I just showed her both and said, hey, pick which one your friend gets. And she was at first like, what if we keep both of them? My friend plays with them both at our house. And I was like, no, 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 we can't keep both of them. And then she was like, okay. This one's better because I can do more with it because it's so undone. Yeah, and I think she liked that it was slightly smaller. Like, it was not quite as heavy as the other one. So it did fit in her room a little bit better. And you hadn't really started doing anything with that one either. Like, it was pretty much untouched, the one she got for Christmas. Right. The Christmas one was pretty much the same, except we had all these plans because we spent a lot of time working on our sons. And I shared that on the blog. I'll put a link in the show notes for you to see. We had started planning things for our daughter's. But the funny thing is that a lot of the things she wants to do will work better on the new one. Like she really wants a spiral staircase that leads to the third floor. Because the weird thing about dollhouses is that only my daughter has noticed, even though I'm the most obsessed with them, she has this eye for this. And she says like, mom, why do all dollhouses have stairs to the second floor, but they all have a third floor and there's never stairs to the third floor? I don't know why, but it is an epidemic in the dollhouse industry. the third floor is where the ghosts live and they don't need stairs. <laughs> but they always put furniture up there. It's like a lot of times you put the baby up there and then there's no way to get up there. So I was telling her we should make a little ladder out of twine. And she was like, no, mom, we're going to get a spiral staircase and cut a hole. Like she is the full architect on this project. I will point out neither of those are safe for a baby. (laughs) That's true. Yeah. So um, at least the balance is kept. We are still just a two, well, two and a half, if you count that sweet shop, dollhouse household. And the good news is John can trust me in a roundabout way. I can make the right decision if I involve our daughter. Yeah. She's the voice of reason. <laughs> this is this is my call to all of you listening. If you have a dollhouse and you live in the Richmond area, keep it to yourself. <laughs> Sherry does not need to hear about it. I don't care if it looks exactly like our house. I will take your bags like of our, furniture though. Like our beach house. <laughs> like Sherry's house growing up. I don't care what it looks like. Keep it to yourself. What if it looks like you in the face? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely keep it to yourself. Because that's creepy on its own and creepy to know that you have that. But I was going to say, we should put a photo of the dollhouse that you got, at least in its before state. Yes. Oh, and we're already working on it. So I'm working on a post of little afters. So you can look for that update at some point. And also check out the one we did on our sons. If you haven't seen that already, that'll be in the show notes too. That sound means we have some updates. And the first ones I'm going to dive into come from episode 133. That's where we talked about the design norms from around the world. And I'll say up front, we're getting lots of feedback from that in terms of people who have interesting stories about the things that we shared or additional design norms. So they're just as fascinating as the first batch of things. Keep them coming. I'm not going to update you on those right now. But if we get enough and there's a nice way to organize it, we might do a bigger update in the future about additional design norms or follow-ups from that episode. But I did want to share two things. First of all, I realized in writing the show notes that I had misspoken about one thing in Australia, the Hills Hoist, which is that drying rack thing. I said someone talked about a drinking game that people played in college called Wheel of Goon, but I feel like this is a very important update. It's actually called Goon of Fortune. (laughs) 
I see how you made the mistake. Well, I was just quoting the person that gave it to me. Oh, they... Yeah, I'm just quoting them. And I don't know, maybe it is also called Wheel of Goon. But when I was linking to it in the show notes, because there's actually a video, you can see people playing this game. Everyone was calling it Goon of Fortune. I mean... Wheel of Goon, Goon of Fortune. Yeah, potato, potato, really. <laughs> and I learned it's because Goon is a slang term for a bag of wine. Oh. And so I guess they hang it on one spoke of the Hills Hoist drying rack and people stand around it and then you spin it. And if it stops where you're standing, kind of like spin the bottle, then you got to drink from it. Except nobody's kissing. No, it's it's a drinking game. Okay. Kids, don't play Goon of Fortune. Or Wheel, Wheel of Goon. Goon. <laughs> Or Goon Jeopardy. Or The Price is Goon. The Price is Goon. Ellen's Goon of Goons. (laughs) The other thing I wanted to mention in that episode, but I totally forgot, it it slipped my mind, was the original person who suggested we solicit these design norms from around the world, Joe. She's a listener from the UK. She had also sent me an article about some of the interesting ways that IKEA adapts their offerings and their photographs for different local cultures. Because... They, as an international seller of furniture, and, you know, they have these catalogs that have all these homes in them, they have to change them a little bit to adapt to local customs and the ways people live. So I'm going to put a link in the show notes to a couple of those articles because there's lots of interesting things within those. Wait a minute. I just thought of something we should look at. We should look at if IKEA U.S. catalogs have people with their shoes on and if catalogs outside of the U.S. have bare feet because I would imagine that that's probably one of the distinctions. Oh, maybe. They didn't point that out. The thing I wanted to call out was that they said when IKEA first started coming into the United States in the 1990s, they had a couple issues The first one is like, I guess when they first started making beds, they listed the sizes in centimeters, not in standard king, queen, full. Yes. So they had to correct that because Americans were like, I don't know how big my bed is in centimeters. Right. I barely know the size in inches. Right. But the thing that made me laugh was they said they were selling in the United States a lot of vases, like a weird amount of glass vases were selling in American stores and they couldn't figure out why Americans were so into these vases. Guys, it's because Americans were using them as drinking glasses. <laughs> so they were buying like six to eight at a time. Apparently the Swedish juice glasses were too small for our big American appetites. <laughs> we need like a seven liter container of all sodas. We need a big glass flower vase to drink out. <laughs> I mean, have you ever heard of something more American than that? But anyways, like I said, we'll have hopefully some more updates down the road from other international design norms as we hear more about them. And I can, again, kind of organize them in a sensical way. But you have some other updates. Yes. Back in episode 130, we were talking about Joyful, that amazing book by Ingrid Fatel Lee, and how she was saying things like, you know, the environment can upgrade the experience. Like one office moved the office to a new place and it had beautiful views and the office was nicer and all the employees started dressing nicer. Yeah, you talked about how they replaced some tile in a prison and like the prisoners were treating it more nicely, like they were taking better care of the space. Exactly. And so the first update I got was from an English teacher, and she said, okay, podcast chit-chat. I taught 11th grade English for 14 years, and after two or three years of teaching, I made my classroom nice. Nice is bold. Nice potted plants, lamps, beautiful, colorful fabrics for all of my bulletin boards, a rug under my desk. Initially, I did it for myself because I was spending more time awake in that room than I did awake in my own house. Like It was my environment I was upgrading. But guess what? The kids' behavior, moods, and participation notably improved. I started only using the lamps and sunlight instead of the overhead fluorescent lights. 
And there was even more improvement. I think that they liked feeling human and being in a room with nice breakable stuff. Well, yeah, didn't she say, or maybe it was the other person who said, like, the teachers warned her not to bring this nice stuff because it was going to get ruined. Yeah, she says, oh, and to add, when I initially brought in a mirror lamps and a gold stapler, the other teachers were like, you're a fool. They are going to destroy this. Nope, not even once. Not a single thing broken or defaced. I also heard from someone talking about her house and her own experience with Mm -hmm. the house. She said, we lived in our detached garage for 11 years. Wow, 11 years? Yes, saving and then building our forever house. Because we were saving so hard to build, everything was mismatched and hand-me-down furniture. Our son's closet, she puts in quote, was a wall oven opening of a ripped out kitchen cabinet. I thought you were going to say it was a wall oven. (laughs) No, but you know, you can picture like a niche in a wall. That was a closet, quote unquote. She said, everything was functional, but not at all attractive. Then we moved into our kitchen carefully, lovingly designed home. My kids ages 5, 7, 9, and 11 make their beds every morning. They keep their rooms tidy. They pick up the playroom immediately when they're asked. It is because they love this house. They want to keep it looking nice as much as we do. I am shocked. It used to be like pulling teeth. Having spaces they enjoy and care about is a game changer. That's so interesting because I feel like I didn't necessarily connect that dot when we first talked about the Joyful book that sometimes when you have a carefully decorated, nice looking space, like people think, oh gosh, you can't possibly have children in there because if I have children, like my house should just look like a daycare or a preschool until they're old enough to take care of nice things. But that's not been our experience. Like we have been able to have a space that we think looks nice but our kids live in, eat in, play in, like they have- Sit upside down on the chairs. Yeah, like. they go plenty wild. And yes, we do have to like reel them in a little bit every once in a while, but generally they respect the space because I think they feel like it is a space that should be taken care of. Right, exactly. It's it's like the person who said, you have to teach your kids not to touch a hot stove. You can't just like keep them in a bubble because what if they go somewhere and they touch a hot stove? Like we need to teach them how to care for things because it equips them with the tools when they grow up to be like humans who can take care right. of things. Well, and it's, it maybe kind of balances out this thought that we have to completely adapt a space to the age of the children. And maybe we're not giving kids enough credit that like they can rise to the occasion and rise to the level of the room as well. I'm not saying like you should have the most pristine room or that you shouldn't adapt your house to your children and the needs of your children. Because like, yeah, fun play spaces with, you know, large areas they can roll around and knock into things or whatever are also good and functional in their own right. But maybe this is encouraging for someone who's been wanting to dress up their living room or their home office or their kitchen a little bit more, but has been hesitant because they feel like their kids aren't ready for it. Like they have to get out of the weeds of having young kids. Right, right, right. So that's really interesting. I'm glad you got that feedback from those folks. And the other update I got was in response to episode 115. Do you guys remember I was talking about my wardrobe and I have like a very pared down, some might say sparse, I love everything in my closet, but I don't have a lot of things wardrobe. That's just how I've lived since I lived in New York and worked outside of the home. Like when I had an office job, I still had hardly any clothes. It's been like the uniform, quote unquote, yeah. has been my thing. You talked about on the podcast, you also did a big post where you toured your closet. So if you guys missed it, we'll link those in the show notes. Yes, but I got an awesome update from someone yesterday. And her name is Rach. And she said, your wardrobe inspired me to slowly switch over to an all black wardrobe for work. This is a side note. I don't think everyone should do the all black thing. That's what works for me. And I love it. I think you should do what you love. But I think it's interesting that she was like, I'm going to try the all black thing probably because she likes black, right? Because I don't think she'd try it if she hated black. 
<laughs> well, it was an interesting takeaway from all that you talked about because I don't feel like that was ever really the point you were making. Right. I, and she said just for work, she said, my main motivators for an all-black work look were, number one, weekday morning simplicity, and two, everybody looks good in black. She said, today was my first shopping trip since my decision to replace some too big clothes and the amazing benefits I did not expect at first were that shopping was, A, so much faster than usual. If it wasn't black, my eyes skipped it. Yay for less mall time. And secondly, I'm a big sucker for new seasonal wardrobes when I'm longing for the next season. I always spend way too much on clothes that really only work for a couple months out of the year. Today, all those pastels were out trying to rush spring along and I wasn't even tempted by them. Win for the wallet and for the time saved. Between this and deconstructed salad dressing, cleansing, moisturizing routine. I will link that in the show notes. I love it. Apple cider vinegar and coconut oil. That's what she's referencing. But she said, you totally changed my life. Which is amazing to me because I don't really think the black thing will work for everyone. Right. I also don't think apple cider vinegar and coconut oil on your face will work for everyone. Doesn't stop you from talking about it. I love it though. So I just, I loved that thought because it is true. Like everything is as complicated as we make it. And if we walk into a store and decide, I'm just going to look at some black stuff. I'm just going to get a few things I need. Whether you're sticking to a shopping list, whether you're sticking to a specific budget, whether you're sticking to a number of items, if you're using the one in, one out rule at home, there are lots of ways you can make a parameter and it simplifies things. So yeah. I love that she did this. And I don't think it has to be just black. Like I think what you said, the fact that it was a parameter is really what got her the benefit she was looking for is because it gave her focus and she could easily talk herself out of anything that distracted herself from that focus. When she saw those trendy spring things, she knew it didn't fit within her parameter. And so she could just breeze past it and focus on what did. Exactly. And some other parameters, if you're like, okay, I don't think that the all black thing would work, you could decide to only buy things that would work three seasons out of the year, not just one. You could decide to only buy things that work with things you already have in your closet. So you're not buying a new top, but then having to buy a new pants and belt and shoes to go with the top because it doesn't go with anything you have. There are lots of ways to figure out what works for you and embrace that instead of experimenting all the time with different shapes, different colors, different patterns. She did say, though, one pro to black being the parameter is that people don't notice as much when you're wearing the same black thing over and over again. Which is totally true. I wear the same thing every day. I think if I was wearing purple one sleeve dresses as my uniform all the time, you'd notice I was always in a purple one sleeve dress. If your parameter was a very specific look. Right. Well, another parameter I've loved is that, do you guys know Elsie Larson? Yes, from A Beautiful Mess. Okay, she's doing only secondhand clothes for a year. She's not buying a single new thing for herself. For her daughter and anyone else, she's allowed to gift or buy something new. But for herself, she's only shopping secondhand. And I think that's a really cool parameter too. So like whatever parameter works. I'm going to throw in one last update that I forgot earlier. When we were talking about the sleep thing in episode, I think, 132, I said pre-sleep, like a pre-sleep routine, like a before sleep routine. But apparently a lot of you heard priestly. Right, like John's a priest. Yes. And before bed, he's doing priestly things. Like I have a priestly routine. Right. <laughs> so I don't. That's not what I meant. I apologize if you heard it as that. I meant pre, P-R-E, sleep. I just think it's funny. It's like when I said a quart of thorns and roses and everyone thought I was talking about like a quart like of milk. Yes. <laughs> I actually have one more update. Sorry, I should have said this before. I'm very disorganized today. Forgive me, guys. But back in episode 132, we talked about shoes off or shoes on in the household. Always polarizing. Yes, because it came up in that design norms survey a lot. So we put a poll in that show notes. I wanted to share the results because they were interesting. 
we got almost 9,000 responses. Wow. So that's quite a sample. Yes. Well, it's quite a sample, except that only 15% of the respondents were international listeners. I mean, that probably fits with our audience, right? Yeah, no, it probably is very representative of our audience, but it isn't necessarily the best sample in which to determine whether it truly is an international divide in terms of... Well, the Canadians think we're nuts. They do. (laughs) So using the 15% of people, that's about 1,300 people that responded from outside the United States, it did confirm that the shoes off, shoes on debate is a American versus non-American divide. So that entire group has shoes off. Not entirely, but here are the numbers. So when you look at the whole bucket of all 9,000 people, 50% of them are just like us, where you are strictly shoes off for the people who live in the house, but you aren't really strict about your guests. Like you don't always enforce it with other people coming in. Right. You might ask someone, you might not. Yeah. So about 50% of the people were like that, When you looked at the whole pool and only 27% of the whole pool was strictly no one ever has them, you or guests. So only about a quarter of the people who responded were very strict about shoes off. But when you got rid of all the Americans and you just looked at the international respondents, that 27% of people who were strict jumped to 62%. So they're much more likely. What I heard from some people was like, the poll was hard for me to take because where I live, you don't have to ask anyone. So you don't have to ask guests. They just do it. It's just completely expected. It's not rude. It would be very rude to keep your shoes on. So I thought that was interesting. I think what you and I have talked about is that we wonder if some of it is tied to weather, as many other norms are. Because I do notice like everyone in Beverly Hills Housewives has their stilettos on. But it never rains, it's never muddy, it's never snowy. So like that's different than Canada, where if you came in with your snowy boots, yeah, it'd be super rude because you'd make a huge mess. Because it snows all the time, 24-7 in Canada. And like, what if a moose just walks in? We're going to lose all of our Canadian listeners. (laughs) I love Canada, though. Do you guys know that? I dated a Canadian before John. We don't talk about him. Anyways, that whole shoes off thing came up in one of our favorite segments that I'm actually going to bring back again this week called, Can We Just Talk About... So can we just talk about textured walls? This is another thing that came up a lot in that survey about design norms around the world. And it comes up a ton in just our DIY life. Like we get messages all the time. Hey, can you point me in the direction of a tutorial for how to scrape a popcorn ceiling or how to get texture off a wall? And I always say, and it shocks people, there is no such thing (laughs) in any of my homes. I haven't been able to do a tutorial because nary a ceiling or wall has been textured or popcorned. And I think it's regional, right? Yeah, that's what was sort of shaking out in the survey results that I was looking at was that it seems to be that there's almost like an east-west divide in the United States for where textured walls are popular. And let's first just establish textured walls and what I mean by that. When we say textured walls, we're largely talking about those finishes like orange peel or knockdown texture, you know, something where the wall is not smooth. On a ceiling, sometimes you have those like splatter or popcorn or... Actually, we stayed in a rental house once that had like kind of a swirl. I don't know what the name of that is. Yeah. But their finishes people put on walls and ceilings that are not smooth. And my understanding is the purpose behind them is that they are faster and more affordable to apply than a smooth finish. Because we've talked about how like getting a smooth drywall finish like over your cracks and stuff where you have 
drywall panels meeting each other. Like that is a skill that I have practiced but have not perfected. Right. It takes us a long time. And if you hire it out, a person has to come apply the mud, wait for it to dry, come back, sand it, apply more mud, wait for it to dry, come back, sand it. Like it is not unusual for them to make four trips to your house before the finished look can be revealed. Ta-da, it's smooth. Yeah, and so I guess in like large residential construction projects, like new constructions, a lot of people will use these orange peel or knockdown textures on the walls because they are faster and cheaper to do. And so when you're making like a huge community full of homes, it's easier and faster to achieve this non-smooth surface. Like, and it also hides more imperfections. Like it doesn't take as much time to get a textured wall as it does to get a smooth wall. But We don't see them around here that much at all. No, I mean, your dad's beach house has orange peel. Have you noticed that? Oh, it does. You're right. Because he has mentioned to me how hard it is to touch up, which I never thought about. Like, smooth might be hard to get at first, but then when you're patching smooth, you just sand it smooth. I don't know how I'd go about manufacturing the same texture that's on the rest of the wall. Yeah, true. You know? I didn't even think about that. But what came up that was interesting in the responses was that most people were mentioning the textured walls. Again, a lot of the people living on the western half of the United States in a complaining manner. Like, I can't believe all these homes in Arizona always have textured walls. Like, I'm so sick of these textured walls. But some people mentioned it. And when I dug a little bit deeper, they mentioned an affection for them. And in a way that actually smooth walls seem like a downgrade, like they seem plain or boring, whereas textured wall seems like it has interest and like it catches the light and, you know, creates almost like a old world plaster look or something like that. And I'm sure there are, you know, a variety of quality in terms of a textured wall, like some of it probably does look very nice, like an old plaster. But for me, coming from a region where smooth walls are kind of the standard, it was funny to hear that some people see a smooth wall and think like something's missing, like someone didn't finish that wall appropriately. Yeah, I remember just recently, maybe like a year or two ago, I learned that smooth walls are not like the final look. I knew that some people did textured walls, but I assumed that was like in the 70s, they added that for like soundproofing or for some other reason or decorative reasons then. But when I learned like no builders now are still using that, it's just because I've been a home buyer for the last 13 years in a region that doesn't use that. Like even the show homes, new builders are doing smooth walls here. So it was so interesting to me to learn like, wait, my friend's buying a new house and they're adding texture like that is still a thing. Yeah. So I wanted to bring it up because I was curious from these responses to see, is this a regional thing? And also, do people feel consistently about it? So I'm going to try to do another sort of multi-question survey, just like I did for the shoes off thing. John loves data. Give him the data, guys. Be forewarned, all of the surveys and polls are going to get much more complicated from here on. (laughs) No, let's keep it simple. We will probably ask, do you have a textured wall? Yeah, I want to know if you have it. Right. Where you live. And if you like it. Yeah, how you feel about it. And so hopefully between those three questions, I can parse some sort of conclusion about where this happens and where it's loved and where it's loathed. Spoiler alert. I think some people will like it and some people won't. What a controversial take you have, Sherry. (laughs) Has anyone ever fully agreed on anything in the history of the internet? Yes, not on the internet. Although actually a lot of people agreed on this thing they recommended to me a couple weeks ago. And I loved it. So I'm digging it this week. But first, we got to take a quick break. 
So many, many moons ago on this podcast, I dug my Rothy's shoes. They're super comfortable. I wax poetic about them. I stop people on the street to tell them they're wonderful. I wish she were lying about this, guys, but she's not. Really? I'm like, you have to know about these shoes because they feel like you're wearing slippers. And now that they have become an official sponsor of this episode, I'm just kind of like amazed. Well, and Rothy's is also now giving our listeners free shipping with no minimum order if you enter the code YHL. Right. And as for why I love them, I get the black point. They're a rubber-bottomed shoe and they feel like a slipper. It literally feels like a sock on your foot. Well, and I'll chime in that the part that impressed me about the Rothy's is that they are made from recycled water bottles. And you can also send your Rothy's back when you're done with them and they'll recycle them again into something like a yoga mat or like an outsole or some other recycled product. So they're super sustainable as well. Right. And they're washable. There are just a million amazing things about them. They are not inexpensive, but they are very well made and they're so worth it. Well, and now you can get free shipping with no minimum order and they always offer free returns. So if you need to like swap a size or whatever, you can always do that. Just go to rothys.com. That's R-O-T-H-Y-S.com and enter that code YHL to get your free shipping. So a few weeks ago on the podcast, I dug a book called The Radium Girls. It was sort of this historical nonfiction science. Aaron Brockovich type. Yeah. Okay. It was a lot of things, but it was very good. And as soon as I recommended it, I got recommendations pouring in for this other book and I loved it. So the book, you guys may have heard of it, is called The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks by someone named Rebecca Skloot, S-K-L-O-O-T. And I'll put a link to it in the show notes at younghouselove.com slash podcast. But it's very similar in the vein of like a historical nonfiction science book with lots of sort of social justice elements to it as well. It's told in such an engaging manner in the way that you learn a lot of science, but also you get this great personal story. The crux of it is that back in the 1950s, this woman named Henrietta Lacks uh, died from cancer. And in the course of her treatment, the doctors that were treating her at Johns Hopkins Hospital took some of the cells from her cancer, and the cells were able to replicate in a way that they got passed to scientists all over the globe to do tests on it, to test drugs on it, to do medical research. And something about her cells were special in the way that they could stay alive and replicate over and over again. And so years after she passed away, her cells were still living and being used, but not to the knowledge or with the consent of her family. And it wasn't for decades that they found out that in some way their mother and their grandmother was still out there and she was an important part of science and medical research. And so the story, as told by this reporter, is just so fascinating, both in how you learn about Henrietta Lacks and how her cells came to be this important part of medical history and medical research, but then also her family's struggle with her being part of history in this way and, you know, them not being told about it, them not being compensated for it. And also just not really knowing much about their mom and their grandmother and what she went through and their kind of struggle to be involved in it. And, you know, it brings up a lot of issues about privacy and consent and race and socioeconomic issues. Like there's so many things wrapped up into the story. I found it fascinating as a person who is not 
really otherwise into like medical drama and stuff like that, it was a great read and I burned through it so fast. So I'll put a link to it in the show notes at younghouselove.com slash podcast. I highly recommend it and I highly thank everyone who recommended it to me. And I thank you for reading it out loud to me. Yes, anytime. John's my Audible subscription, guys. Basically. Okay, and this week I am digging a game that we have been playing with the kids. It is bar none my favorite kids game to play. It is called Ticket to Ride. The funny thing is it's not really a kids game. That's right. We got the adult version. We actually borrowed it from a friend because we wanted to see if our kids were old enough to play it, assuming it would probably all fall apart and we'd buy the kids version. But guys, it's the very first grown-up game that we can play with them and they both get it. It's almost like Monopoly where you buy spaces on a board and you get money and like collect rent. This is a train game. So you buy routes and you collect points for how many routes you get. Yeah. And there's extra bonus points for like the longest continuous route. And you get cards that you have to kind of claim certain routes and get bonus points from the cards. So it's sort of in the Monopoly where you get points slash money and earnings from yeah, what you conquer. And so I thought, okay, maybe our eight-year-old, she's almost nine, will get into this, but I'm not sure. Well, she loves it. She yes. fully understands it and she plays it on her own as an adult player. Like she has her own color. She makes her own routes. She fully gets it. She has beaten me at the game, guys. Guys, yep. she's great. You did at the make game. a few fatal flaws. I made a fatal error by not completing one of my root cards when I thought I did. But still, an eight-year-old beat me at this game. Our four-year-old cannot play on his own, so he plays on my team. But the thing that's crucial to him wanting to play on my team is every time we buy a route, you put little trains on the route on the board, and he loves placing the trains. So by being on my team and having the job of putting the trains down, and he'll go like, choo-choo, and put them down, he's fully engaged. He likes looking at my cards. When you draw certain cards, they're worth certain values. He loves when we draw a rainbow card, which has extra magic to it. So there's enough to keep him engaged. I would not say if you have a four- and a five-year-old that this would be a great great family game for you guys. But if you do have an older kiddo, you know, in the eight or nine age range and a younger, the younger might be enticed to play on a team with the older one playing solo. It has been so much fun for us. There was a point where we played four nights in a row every single night and it goes along with our watching less TV and loving to play games with the kids. I'm so glad we did that experiment because we are branching out into so many more games and having so much fun with them. And so far, we've only played the American version. There apparently is a European version that many people have recommended, but we're starting slow, everyone. Yeah, we've heard the European version so fun. Everyone DM'd me and was like, if you're really into Ticket to Ride, you have to get the European version. And then I've heard there's multiple ones around the world, and you can connect all of them and make a giant game board. We will have to clear the dining room table first. (laughs) Thanks for listening to Young House Love Has a Podcast. And thank you for telling us what you do while you listen. Like Sasha, who emailed to tell us that she listens while spinning on her bike trainer in her basement. Yeah, she said she makes herself sprint for any theme song, sound effect, or interview response. So according to her, we make for a pretty tough workout. Well, Sasha, then these are for you. Nice. Thank you. And don't forget to check out younghouselove.com slash podcast for all the bonus links, photos, and info from this episode. Yep, like those articles about how IKEA adapts to different countries and that poll about textured walls. Please go take it. And a look at the new dollhouse we got. I cannot wait to show you what we're going to do with it, too. Later. Bye. What if it looks like you in the face? (laughs) (laughs) Definitely keep it to yourself. Does it look like me or Chad? (laughs) Both. I mean, clearly. Well, I guess, and also the show notes, we should put a picture of the dollhouse. (laughs) (laughs) Guys, it's just a picture of John. They're the same.